Hi, this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Vine, a podcast about food and relationships. I'm a restaurant critic and food writer based in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's guest is Cleophis Heatington. Hi, Cleophis. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for um, having me. Can you please introduce yourself to listeners who may not know who you are? Um, my name is Cleophis Heatington. Um, I am a chef. Um, I'm currently in Asheville, North Carolina, where I've been the executive chef at Bene on Eagle for the last year. Um, I am originally from Miami, Florida, but um, kind of had made a home in Atlanta over the last year and a half, two, well, I'll say two years. And um, as I've recently departed Bene on Eagle, I'm um, planning to come back home to my second home of Atlanta. Well, we are very excited to have you back. Can Speaking of back, let's take it back. Um, let's rewind uh, to your childhood. When, when did you know that food was going to be a thing for you? Like, was there a dish? Was there a moment when you were like, huh, this is more than something I just like to eat? Um, I mean, for me, like food has always been prevalent. Like, I think as you know, most chefs, like, you know, we grew up in households, you know, typically your interest is sparked by your mom, your grandmother, you know, uncle, aunt, grand, you know, grandfather. And, you know, mine was definitely sparked by my grandmother and my mom. You know, I grew up in a household where, you know, we always had cooked meals, um, you know, and then, you know, my mom and my grandmother being educators, they, they, um, they had a little side hustle here and there. Um, where they would cater parties and, you know, things of that nature. So, you know, I was always around and would help out here and there. And then um, I was always fixated on, you know, PBS. And back then when it was Julia Childs and Jacques Pepin and, you know, Wolfgang Puck and these chefs that was on the PBS back then and actually teaching and doing, you know, so to speak, real cooking. Um, not that nobody isn't doing real cooking now, but it's just less glamorous. And, you know, so those things are always, always interesting. And then, you know, going through middle school and high school, I was joined, you know, I joined Future Homemakers of America. Um, I think they call it FCCLA or something like that now. So I was always in home economics or um, throughout middle school and high school and you know I was always excited about just cooking food or eating food too or you know seeing the for me it was you know once it came grew out of my kitchens at home like to me it started to become more attractive as in the, like the science of food and you know the ma manipulation of it all um, you know and and it was just something I loved, you know, I, I still say to this day, even though as much as I loved food back then, like 99% of the stuff I eat now, I didn't eat until I started cooking, um, you know, 11, almost 12 years ago now. So you weren't like one of those adventurous, like sushi eating <laughs> toddlers that we see all over the internet no. now. You were a late bloomer. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely did not. Um, I didn't eat fish I mean, until I, I was, I was twenty, so I was a real picky eater. My parents loved to tell people how, all I wanted was Mickey D's and pizza. 
Um, yeah, that's. I mean, I'm I'm kind of in that realm. I thought I was doing something when I was taking the dates to to the cheesecake factory, you know. <laughs> but little, <laughs> you know, little did I know. Like, uh, yeah, that's that that, yeah, that wasn't it. So, um, <laughs> so take yeah, me back so to that, so take that, me back to that time. Like, you grew up in Miami. You said, um, what was that like? How'd you get there? What was that like? What was the foodscape like? Um, I mean, growing up in Miami, it's, you know, it's, it's diverse, you know, you have the Caribbean, you have all parts of Latin America there, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you do have your bits and hints of influence of, you know, um, Europe there also. Um, but of course, you know, the, the overwhelming, um, perspective and view of Miami is the Caribbean and Latin culture. So. You know, for me, growing up in, I remember, you know, across the street, like the first, like, real encounter that I had with, you know, the Haitian culture was, you know, when my mom, you know, married my my, my dad and my stepdad. And across the street, my neighbors were Haitian. And, but up until I think I was five, six, seven years old before living in a predominantly, like, you know, Jewish white neighborhood in Miami, like, I had never heard Creole spoken before um but you know getting to know their family and under you know being over their house all the time and their mom giving me lunch and um you know being introduced to all these different ingredients um or I, I always like to say it's just you know a lot of the same ingredients I was eating as you know someone that grew up in Miami and born in Miami that has a hint of you know, Caribbean background. Um, what is your background? Because and, I know, you know it's a big part of your cuisine. I mean, the diaspora, and especially when you had, it, was it Ebi Chop or Ebi Chop? I know, uh, to pronounce it, it's it's Ebi it's Chop Bar. Right, and that's um, that's when I so first Ebi, that's when I first came to know you is when you were working at Lazy Betty, and you had the side hustle. Um, and the menu was super diverse. I mean, you can definitely tell that you grew up in Miami. Um, why was that, you yeah, know, why did that resonate with you so much as a kid? Um, I mean, like I said, it's just growing like, you know, I was still naive though, growing up in Miami. Cause you know, you, you, you know, you grew up in this melting pot, um, of a, of a place. And, you know, although like part of my background is, you know, from the South African-American and my, you know, my grandparents who migrated to Miami in the early forties, um, um, by way of other ancestry that came from, you know, the Caribbean and, and from, um, Africa and, you know, more recently is, you know, my background is South Florida. Um, but, you know, I grew up eating like, goat and oxtails and um plantains and you know rice and beans was part of almost every meal um so you know being in miami was was you know whether it's one of my best friends who was guatemalan and another best friend of mine who was cuban you know it was just being around all my friends and their grandmothers and their moms and dads and the music that um, significantly 
influence how I look at food, you know, and, you know, even being naive to the point that back then, like I used to, you know, I would see someone that was Afro-Latino and think like, oh yeah, maybe they had a, a African-American dad or African dad or mom and, you know, their um, other parent was, you know, white, white, Hispanic, you know, not knowing that back then that, you know, the significance and the ties to, you know, the African culture was not just so recent. Um, and, you know, it's growing up and then leaving that bubble of South Florida and even learning more as I, you know, I joined the military out of high school. Um, and then even, you know, after the military going into um, the public health sector and, you know, traveling and living in Africa and, you know, having spending time in Haiti that, you know, I really, even back then eating the food that I was eating, not knowing that, you know, nine and a half years later after that, I would start cooking. And then even five years into my cooking career, I would start, you know, doing a pop-up that focused on the African diaspora. So it's, it's, um, (laughs) It's a long story, but it's a unique story, I think, um, how, I, how I've gotten to this place and finding my identity in the food that I cook every day. And, and I mean, that's been, I think, I think you, as a chef, managed to always have a really strong sense of place, whether it is in Miami or in Atlanta or in Asheville, where you were until recently. Can we talk about, you know, your Atlanta career and, and why Atlanta has gotten under your skin in a good way and maybe in a bad way? Because, <laughs> like, you know, I do follow you on Instagram, um, so we do have to get into all that. But, like, let's get the base first, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, little known, like, fact, like, I, you know, I've this me moving to Atlanta in 2019 was my second stint in Atlanta. Um I don't know why the hell I chose to move there back in, well, actually I do. So back in 12 and 13, um, I moved to Atlanta and I was part of the opening team of the Optimist. Um, You know, as most of us know, that was kind of around the time when, you know, Ford Fry was coming through and crushing all the buildings and taking over the rest (laughs) of the team in Atlanta. Um, you know, basically, you know, Buckhead Life Group was going out and he was buying up all their spaces and, you know, King and Duke, you know, Optimus, St. Cecilia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so um, moving to Atlanta back then, you know, it was basically because basically my first three jobs, I was extremely lucky and blessed, um, not blessed on the side of being part of opening of a restaurant because that's fun but it ain't fun <laughs> um you know being a cook yeah being a cook and helping opening up your first three restaurants as a cook or as a prep cook in my first job um but also i sound blessed because you know nobody knew that these three restaurants would be all best new restaurants like with bon appetit and be finalists for james beard um all in succession in my first three jobs it's wild. And, you know, that, and that, but I always say, like, you know, opening up the original Yardbird when it was really just supposed to be a food 
you know, chef-driven concept. And was that in Miami or in New York? Yardbird that you opened? No, that was in Miami. The original, mm. the original nice. Yardbird is. But, but I, but I say that that set the foundation for my career. And mm-hmm. um, um, I just say like I ended up in Atlanta in twelve and thirteen because the last restaurant I had worked for in what was two thousand twelve, Cypress Room, the chef that was in there was friends with. Um, some of the guys who who had came over from Kraft um, that recently closed in Atlanta to help, you know, be all of a sudden part of Ford Fry's group. Um, and that's how I ended up getting there and getting the job there. Um, it almost took me two months to get in there because they weren't hiring because they had, you know, openings. But um, I was there for a year and a half. And, you know, the first year and a half of the Optimist, and, you know, it was, I loved it, you know, and I loved what Atlanta was and what it was becoming at that time. But um, but at the same time, I you know I saw the writing on the wall of what it was like working with um, Rocket Farms and Ford Fry Group. Mm. Um, and um, you know, um, again, connections with people at the Optimist allowed me to from there move to New York City, and I you know that's how I got a job working. Um, you know. Did a stage at Per Se for a couple of months and then eventually got on and was working with the John George group. I mean, you literally have worked at like so many like high profile restaurants. It's wild. It's wild. I mean, even for an Atlanta chef, period. You know? It's I mean, but it's, like I said, it's 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 you know, being a part of the yard you mean yard bird when it first opened and then Kong River House and then the Cypress Room and the Optimus is like you know, who knew, like, like, and even me back then, like when I first started cooking, like it just ties into the fact, like I said, like I, 99% of the stuff that I was eating, like I didn't know what it was. Like I didn't know what an artichoke, I mean, I had seen one before cause I was a, a bag boy in high school at a grocery store. Um, and I remember like seeing it for the first time and not having a clue what the artichoke was. <laughs> coming back to my cooking career and now, oh, this is an artichoke. This thing is, this is how you, you know, break it down. This is how you cook it. This is what it tastes like. You know, it tastes just like something I grew up eating, jackfruit, you Mm. know? So it's like, it's, it's, you know, it's just being lucky, I feel, like being blessed because who knew, like, my first three, four jobs were, you know, all being brand new restaurants that like you know they're gonna achieve these these heights and accolades you know um so i you know yeah when i eventually moved to new york i knew what i was doing i was going to try to work in the continue to work in the best restaurants Mm -hmm. um but my first four jobs were just it, it was just the luck of the draw right and um you know um but what technique I'm sure you learned, which is evident in your food, if anyone's never eaten it. I mean, it's 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 really dynamic and colorful, but, you know, there's so much technique and it's just not something I think you can fake. Um, and so, I mean, when you came to Atlanta, you worked at Lazy Betty directly or did you work anywhere else beforehand? Um, so when I moved back to Atlanta in 19, um, I had a, a brief stop, um, as an executive sous chef for the 
I'm not going to name the restaurant. It's the <laughs> Springs that had just opened. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't um, the best experience with ownership, more so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose to step away from there, and you know, until until this day, like, cause you know, there's a lot of stuff that happened with me personally um, at the end of 18, because you know, I had an investor in Miami, and you know, he had his comp, you know, he had his issues, and it basically caused me to to lose my life savings of you know. Mm few hundred thousand dollars and whatever so you know moving to atlanta was kind of a new start and you know i i I only say that to say because going to leslie betty like i was feeling so much um like depression and like imposter syndrome and all that stuff and Mm. you know um you know getting the job at lazy betty and working with ron and aaron and and Austin and, you know, KT and Christian and uh, Tia and all these, you know, other people that were working there um, from the front to the back that, like, I, you know, I, you know, to an extent, I say, like, you know, that place probably saved my life um, <laughs> because I was, I was in such, like, a bad space at that time that, um, you know, I wasn't sure if I want to keep cooking and I was sad and depressed kind of had disconnected from my family and, you know, relationship I had had ended. And so, you know, going to work at Lazy Betty, like, um, and then allowing me to, con- you know, eventually once they even earned, I earned their trust, I should say, um, allowing me to do, you know, a pop-up or two there was, you know, like, um, you know, the best thing that could, could have happened to me. And, that that time of you know the end of 18 and 2019 um because um yeah it it, it was it was a rough year it was a very rough year and then little did i know <laughs> um it wasn't it wasn't even really over that no. the, the oh, hard no. part of it yeah then the pandemic hit right <laughs> well i mean that's that's well for me uh, you know, it felt like a pandemic hit before the pandemic actually hit because, you know, like when we first encountered each other, you know, with, you know, I think you were still at Atlanta Magazine and, you know, my pop-up being, you know, named best pop-up and all that stuff. Um, at the time, like, you know, I was, I, I had left Lazy Betty and then I was at the Lawrence as their executive chef, but, you know, around that time when all that stuff happened, um, you know, my, one of my best friends and sisters had passed away Mm. and my grandmother passed away on Thanksgiving day, two days after that. And then, um, I had a cousin who came to my grandmother's funeral. Um, she ended up passing away that, you know, the weekend of the funeral. So much tragedy. Um, and so that's what really abruptly, caused me to just step away from the Lawrence back then at the end of 2019. Um, you know, and then me, my birthday is January 4th and my grandfather had the same birthday and, you know, him and my grandmother had been married for 67 years and we already had planned a 90th birthday for my grandfather. Um, so, you know, we celebrate that. And then this is where my disappearing act in Atlanta kind of happened. It's like, I got, you know, 
what, four days after my, um, four days after my birthday and getting back to Atlanta, I got in a really bad car accident out in Austell. Um, and you know, that same weekend and week I was, cause I was actually out in Austell trying to pick up a, you know, you know, pig's head to do head cheese. Cause I had like a couple pop-ups scheduled into session at Lazy Betty. And, um, you know, I got in a really bad car accident. I was in the hospital for about five days. And then I was on bed rest for um, almost almost three months. So going into the pandemic, I was mm. already home, jobless, and, um, you know, stressed out and all those things of what I had already been experiencing in 18 were just starting to just creep back in as into the mental health space of, you know, the anxiety and the depression and, um, you know, so while I hate to say this, but like the pandemic happening was almost a welcome thing for me because now I knew like everybody else was sitting their ass at home just mm. like I was. Mm. And I wasn't seeing the world just, continue to move and me be being stuck at home and then at the same time like you know like I said it's in, the, the end of 19 like was was great you know like my pop-up was moving and people were starting to pay attention to it um in Atlanta you know because you know I had been doing this pop-up for at that time since what 2016 mm-hmm. um you know it had evolved into what it is now with the name and just the sequencing and consistency. Yeah, it definitely had legs. I remember I was writing the best new package with Nicole Taylor for Thrillist for the best new restaurants at the time. And we had Lazy Betty, we awarded it to Lazy Betty for Atlanta. And the side story, because every winner had a side story, was your your pop-up. But then at that time, you, you moved um, for an opportunity, right? Uh, I'm not sure if that's yeah. if the timing is correct on that. Yeah, I mean, it, it it was yeah, it was all just symbiotic and and perfect synergy of everything. Um, but you know, um, having a pandemic happen was I can honestly say, you know, uh, a gift and a curse to us to us all. You know, because I, I I you know. Um, but it, you know, it allowed me to sit down and, and stop trying to run the rat race too. Um, and, you know, refocused and pay attention to myself and my own mental health more than anything. Yeah. And mental health is something I definitely want to discuss with you because it's something you're vocal about on social media. Um, you know, you recently left your positions in Asheville citing, um, mental health um you know prioritizing it kudos more people need to do it especially more chefs um but you know it it, it was a big choice for you because you just received an you were just an emerging chef finalist for the James Beard awards um so to, back from chicago yeah you had literally just gotten back from the awards in chicago which was just this past may 2022 um and 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 then you're like all right guys <laughs> But I'm out. But I, I, I think anyone that's been following your career was like, good job. Um, can you talk about, you know, I mean, you, 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 you were, 
you were trying to you were dancing around it when we were discussing COVID and and your losses and your family and your car accident. But you know, I I know just because I struggle with mental health issues myself, you know that it's not something that just like appears. It's been there, right? Um, when did this you know start really nagging at you um, as it related to your career, especially? Well, I, I mean, my I mean, mental health is something that's been you know, a part of who I am for, I, I would say all of my, you know, all of my life. Um, you know, it definitely was, um, I mean, it's definitely something that really hit me when I was in the military, mm. um, when I was in the Navy and, you know, four years, you, out of four years, you spend almost 39 months on deployment out of four and a half years. Um, and I went in for nine eleven, So, um, I was almost in like two months before 9-11 happened and then 9-11 happens and, you know, you're just, the world changes and conflict is just consistently happening throughout. Um, or you're just being involved in, you know, parts of conflict or high stress environments consistently is, you know, definitely not something, you know, our, our bodies and our minds are meant to handle, which in a sense is, highly relatable to the kitchen. Mm. Um, and, you know, for me, being a cook, you know, sort of better, you know, the first five, six years of my career was, it was great. It was fun. Um, but I do, you know, I do, I do, I didn't realize it um, until, you know, like, you know, as I moved, you know, as I, as I transitioned from a cook into being into leadership roles, but, you know, three years into now, I mean, I would say eight years, but then finally three years of management experiences, you know, when I had partnered with these guys in Miami and we opened up a, a seafood oyster bar called Shelly's and it was extremely well received and you know but miami is miami if you're not in winwood brickle miami beach it's hard to to and you're more of a destination location kind of restaurant it's hard to attract people mm -hmm. um but in closing in that space was when i really started to notice and really admit to myself that like you know this you know mental health this mental illness is not just oh you know, I go to a therapist consistently for a month or two and then it's fine. But this is something that is actually a part of who I am. And it's a daily, the daily experience is a daily fight, you know. Um, you know, like I, I, I know I perceive an image of strength and, and leadership a lot of times, a lot of people. But, you know, even with my cooks and even with management and ownership and places I work, I've always tried to be as transparent as I am. It's like, look, I'm, mm -hmm. I deal with mental health, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not just a, a once a week or once a month or once a year thing. Like, you know, there's days that you might be talking to me. And in that moment, I might be having a complete internal anxiety meltdown and breakdown. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, like I said, leaving that job, and also being in a relationship and losing, you know, closing that restaurant, even though we 
were doing well and received well that it really, really did start to play on me. Um, and, you know, that was 2018, 17, when that we were open for about a year and a half. And, um, you know, that's just when I really started to admit to myself and say, like, okay, like, you need to get help. You need to seek therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, because the depression, the anxiety, um, you know, the, you know, in a sense, like, most people attach PTSD to, you know, someone that has been in, in the military, but PTSD, which you know, obviously what the acronym stands for, post-traumatic stress syndrome, is that was a post-traumatic stress syndrome that I was experiencing in the closing of, you know, essentially something that was my baby and the first thing that I had really creatively had poured into. Um, Within those stressful moments, I, you know, I damaged friendships, I damaged my relationship. You know, I, you know, again, like I entered into another business partnership with someone that was an investor and that, you know, he did me wrong and I lost, you know, a lot of money. Mm. Um, it, it, it was just, um, it was a flow of things. And even though I started seeking therapy and I was doing it consistently, but, you know, at the same time, there's still that battle of, even though you are getting that treatment and you you still got to practice the and use the tools that you're starting to learn from this from this licensed therapist or you know doctor or psychiatrist and I wasn't you know so I you know my spiral still continued to to happen you know even like mm-hmm. that as I moved to Atlanta in 2019 um <clears throat> and just you know, like I, I, I wasn't doing the work to take care of my mental health. You know, I was doing it loosely, but not as, um, you know, giving myself the time and the space and, you know, working and using the tools that, that I needed to, to continue to improve myself, you know, because, you know, I had allowed so much, of me being a chef and the food that I do to become my identity as who I am as a person completely instead of, you know, maintaining that that divide that we all need as people who work in this world to like, okay, this is work and this is life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and still to this day and um know it's something I struggle with you know I think that's what most ambitious hard-working and especially creative people we struggle with because yeah that's like, what we talked about right the imposter syndrome when I saw you at the farmer's market um we were talking yeah, about imposter syndrome yeah it's it's wild but I said to you at the time just what you just said and that's a that's creative people man you know, I mean, it's it's just part of being creative. I think it's what makes us creative because we're so highly tuned. The same stuff that probably makes you anxious and depressed is the same stuff that makes you strong as a chef, right? And because yeah, I definitely agree with that. Because you're anxious or depressed, um, or you have PTSD, but still 
you try. I think those people are the bravest. Um, and, you know, I feel also that you, I do feel like, you know, you talk about things that a lot of people are uncomfortable discussing. Um, I see you as a very brave person, a very strong person. I don't think you have to be without issue to be strong. But just just to talk about something else I wanted to discuss was you, you had posted something on um, Instagram recently, you know, saying that you were leaving this new job that you had. Um, I mean, to to call partnerships, you know, not good for you mentally and to say you're leaving a job for mental health is like kind of like a ballsy move. Why, why did you feel that that was a necessary part of your message when you were leaving um, your job at Ben Ann Eagle? Um, and because like, so, you know, ownership changed within my year time at Bene. Um, you know, originally going there, I was hired by, you know, Chef John Fleer, you know, who him, who in himself is, you know, like I always tell people, most, the best chefs in the world are the people you usually don't know. And, to me, John Fleer, you know, who was the, I guess you said, the creator and the grandfather of, of um, Blackberry Farms out in East Tennessee. Oh. Um, and, 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 and in himself, Rhubar and Asheville is a, you know, five-time nominee for James Beard finalist and semi-finalist multiple times that, you know, he's the originator and creator um, of Benet on Eagle as a white man, which is in itself something that, you know, here in Asheville has been, you know, a big topic of conversation from the time it opened and still to this day. But um, ownership changed. Um, while coming to Benet, um, I didn't have a suit. I didn't have any sous chefs. I, I did hire two friends of mine from Atlanta to come up and be sous chefs. They didn't start for almost a month and a half or so. Um, and, but also having, I think about seven cooks for basically three different F and B outlets or four F and B outlets. Um, because part of the lease agreement, although we were independently owned by, by John Fleer, the lease agreement he had with the hotel is that we had to provide services for their, their, banquets operation lounge hmm. and we had to do breakfast seven days a week. Yikes. Um, so for me, like I can say that while I won't say that they misled me or did not, um, tell me things, mm -hmm. um, it wasn't completely explained or wasn't full I don't feel like it was full clarity and transparency of what I was getting into also. Um, because even my understanding of coming to the job, I, you know, I remember talking to the outgoing chef de cuisine because there was a chef de cuisine between me and Ashley Ashante, um, who was her sous chef who got promoted. Um, that um, I remember her mentioning like, yeah, the hotel is supposed to be hiring a banquet chef 
you know, but not only, you know, basically I went up there for an interview, um, was there for two days and then I moved back to Asheville, um, in a week and a half, a week and a half later. Um, so it was all just, it was just all very fast. Um, you know, and, you know, I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of questions I didn't ask and probably, you know, to the extent didn't get full answers or transparency on. And at the same time, to me, like, I think I'm not placing any one blame on Fleer and his group or, you know, even on myself. It's that, like, for me, like, I know I was just super excited for the opportunity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it was going to be my first job in almost two years because I said I hadn't worked since the end of 18 because of all the the tragedy and the car accident and then the pandemic happened. Um, and then I, I I knew, I didn't even know the job was open. Um, they kind of found me (laughs) because of my pop-ups and stuff that, you know, I had started doing again in Atlanta last summer at Gato and but I knew what Bene was, you know, because Times Magazine, one of the places you had to visit and eat, you know, um, it was a restaurant that for me, like, even in this last year, I thought I would never get that opportunity to cook my food unadulterated on, you know, on a daily aspect in a restaurant with a staff and a team you know, unless I created that myself. So there was all things that I jumped at to do, you know, you know, probably even to an extent blind to, you know, just ignoring some of the red flags or red lights that I already had saw. Mm. Um, and, but I, I do know, and I will say like, you know, I, I felt, I did feel supported through it for the most part. You know, even though, you know, the short staffing and, you know, the dynamics of still feeling effects of COVID and um, was all still present, you know, I, I did always feel that Fleer and his group, you know, they weren't going to push me more than, you know, I could handle or the restaurant staff could handle front or back of the house. Um you know, I can definitely say if the change really happened mentally when, yes, I, you know, my the two sh- two, sh- two sous chefs that I brought up with me, they eventually left because, mm. you know, they weren't quite happy with the the setup and the dynamic of Benet. And then, you know, the the restaurant was sold to the hotel um, four months ago. And, you know, at the same time, the, you know, one thing I I do feel frustration too with Fleer and his group about is that, you know, they had been working on selling the restaurant, you know, for a bit of time before they announced it, you know. So they told us two weeks before the full transition was supposed to happen. Um, and he had obviously, you know, changing businesses, especially large businesses, it doesn't just happen overnight or in two weeks right so a lot of my frustration lied with that um coming into that beginning of the year like you know i was feeling a lot more anxiety a lot more stress because like i said like that was around the time when that covid spike happened again 
Um, it gets extremely, extremely slow here in Asheville during the winter. Like, you know, you're talking about Friday and Saturday nights, we might have 50, 30 reservations to start. Mm. Quite the difference from the, the summer surge. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it just all started to play effect on me mentally, you know, and, and, and then, like I said, once the business was sold and, you know, I went into the new partnership and relationship with the hotel eager and happy and excited because I was like, okay, now we're going to have the capital to really um, supply the kitchen. Because even coming to Bene, like the kitchen wasn't very stocked well. Like not, not enough Lexans, Cambros, ladles, there was barely a light in, in the cooler, you know, not, not enough plateware. It was, it was just a lot <laughs> coming <laughs> into that space. Um, you know, like, you know, coming there, it's like the, the reviews were down, sales were down. I, I do know we were coming out of COVID too. So I know that does play a, did play a part on it, but, um, um, but it just wasn't a happy space. Like, it didn't feel good. You know, like, I remember eating there when I came for my, my, you know, my interview and tasting and all that. And I, you know, I just felt the coldness of it, mm. you know. And we, I mean, and I say we because the three, four guys that were there with me from, like, day one, you know, while they're, they're very good and hard workers, consistent and reliable, you know, at times their quality and attention to detail did lack, but they, you know, like we, we did it, you know, you know, um, we, we pushed hard and they came in when I needed them. And, you know, as we cycled through different cooks and stuff, like, you know, between the breakfast guy, Jimmy and Justin and Alex and guy drew like you know they you know they they were there and they supported me like you know just you know i i told them like you know getting this james beard nomination yeah it is a lot of hard work i've done over the years but you know getting to this moment here and doing it is a lot responsible of you all too and supporting me um just as much but um like i said is it when the business changed hands with the hotel, I was eager, you know, staff was able to get like full health benefits. You know, we were able to raise our hourly pay rates to be more competitive um, with, you know, what, what things have risen to now to being between 18 and 23 and $24 an hour for a line cook, mm. you know, no matter the mm -hmm. experience, which is like, I remember my first job like working at Yardbird. I worked there for two months for free and then, I started prepping overnight shifts, making $9 an hour. Um, and <laughs> so it was a sharp contrast for me to be like, damn, like you have no experience, but I have to pay you 18 bucks now. Um, but I'm happy to do that because I think everybody in this industry needs to start paying people better and giving them a, a living wage. Um, or they're not going to be able know, to, or, a, or they're not going to have people, right? Because we're seeing that people don't yeah. want to work right now. That's if you're not going to pay them and treat your people right, 
you're having staffing issues. I mean, I'm, I know people are having staffing issues that are, that do treat their people right, but but you know, I I feel like for the first time, chefs are able to kind of set more of their terms. At least I hope that's yeah, what it's like. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, you know, and I was, like I said again, that's one thing that I did appreciate working for Flair Group before the company changed, the restaurant chain changed. Is that you know they understood the perspective from the restaurant and from the chef's perspective, um, you know, um, as the hotel took over, you know, they operated to me as just another hospitality entity, you know, mm-hmm. like we're going to do these things because we're we're associated with the Hilton brand, no matter what it is to the detriment of our staff or or our community, you know, like I, I, the same time the business was changing hands, I basically had a brand new staff. There were only two people on staff Yikes. that, that, um, had been there longer than, um, a month at that time when the business changed hands around the end of March. Um, and I didn't have any sous chefs too at that time. So at the same time the business changed hands, I had a completely new um, back of the house staff that I'm also trying to, you know, teach and learn and get, you know, they're trying to learn how to work with me. I'm trying to learn how to work with them, you know, all at the same time, still trying to be consistent with the food and the the, the execution of service that 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 we were, you know, we had been providing. You know, and then, you know, the hotel decided to not bring on the, you know, the current GM. So they fired him. And then the front of the house was kind of like all over the place. And now I'm, you know, still, you know, I'm executive chef. I already had been the executive chef, the prep cook, the banquet cook, the, the lounge cook, the, you know, now I'm also a part-time front of the house manager and food runner um, and busser too. Um, just because of now that disarray and dysfunction in the front of the house. And so, you know, uh, it's, well, I, I was very eager and excited to about that new change, but just the way the hotel and the GM approach the, that transition of just full bore on now we're going to do in-room dining. Now we're going to do lunch. Now mm-hmm. we need to do amenities for guests checking in. You know, that's three, that's three, oh, and we're going to, um, you know, extend F&B hours of operations just so we can fall in into um, guidelines with Hilton, you know. And, I, it, you know, to me, I, I still don't believe Hilton said these are the requirement. I think there are maybe guidelines that you need to, you know, get to or fall in with into, but... You know, I also think that there is greed within starting to execute these things as the GM, you know, the GM was trying to just put all these things out, you know, within a certain amount of time. Because at the same time, we don't, we never, they never did in-room dining. They hadn't done, they barely did lunch before the pandemic. And they never done amenities. And the hotel was not structuredly built properly to support all that because there's only one kitchen and there's a restaurant kitchen and the restaurant kitchen was not that big either. Um, so for me, that's when my 
my mental health was really starting to be affected. Mm -hmm. And from the time when I found out, um, and I guess it was like the end of February when semifinalists came out, like, like it was probably like, it, it wasn't that duration from that time until going to Chicago, not, it was not the highlight of my career. It was hmm. probably one of the more disappointing parts of my career because like, this is something that, you know, you know, you want to revel and you want to celebrate. Um, but I was struggling, you know, I was struggling to get through, you know, those first, what, last five months I've been in. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that I did finally have a solid, I did, I was able to finally hire a group of solid guys to work in the back of the house with me. I finally found the right group of people. Cause you know, while I had pretty much carried that restaurant for the last, you know, the previous six, seven months, like the last four or five months that I was there, like, you know, uh, a lot of those guys, like whether they realized it or not, like, yeah, I still was putting them in position to be successful by making sure the orders were there and things are getting prepped and communication and whatever it may be. I mean, you know, they were there and showing up for me when there was a lot of days where I was just, I was physically there, but mentally not even close to being in actual at all, probably. So appearances are very um, deceiving is what you're saying. <laughs> People probably thought, oh, he has it all. He's got this Tony job at Bennett because like Bennett, you know, because of your predecessor who had also received James Beard nod, you know, it was like a hot job to have, but it, but it just, it, it doesn't, I guess it just doesn't matter <laughs> if you're not taking care of yourself. Right. Yeah. And, and even now that I'm, I'm been away from Benning now going to the third week, like I, you know, I've realized like how much, like, I don't, I, I didn't realize how much like damage had been done to my mental health um, from working the way I worked. Um, nobody made me work that way. I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna, that's not on anybody. Mm. The way I worked and how hard I worked and what I put into that place is that's, that's all on me. Um, but I also knew that if I wasn't present, like it, it wouldn't meet my expectations and standards, you know? Um, and you know, it goes back to that, what we mentioned before, just being a creative person, like, you know, especially as a chef, like you look at almost every plate that leaves that, that pass as a signature with your name on it. Oh, it's maddening. And if you're a perfectionist, forget about it. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 you know, and that's where, um, that's where I've, you know, I've, that's the space that I kind of have muddled in for the last year and, you know, battling and pushing through the anxiety, you know, like, you know, two months into the job, like I was, you know, sure you've heard the stories before i was in dry storage upstairs crying on the phone with my mom just telling her like i don't i don't know if i want i don't want to do this like i want to leave you know 
Um, but, you know, I did what we, most of us all do. We just push through it, you know? And, but now, like I said, three months removed, I see what three, you know, pushing through it has done to my mental health, you know, because I'm not sleeping that well still right now. Like, even though, like, the pressures and the release is there of not the day-to-day operation of running a restaurant, but... um well, that gets into your nervous system. I mean, like it, like even I remember when I was a line cook in, in San Francisco after culinary school, like it would take me hours just to come down like energetically from a night on the line. So I have to imagine when you've been like putting your head down and working and dealing with all these changes and all of these challenges that, you know, like it's going to take a minute for your body to re- re- release. Right. And your mind. Um yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's what one of my my buddies was telling me because he, you know, he he did the same thing about three years ago. Because um, I was just telling him like, you know, the other, you know, a week ago Saturday, I just popped up in the middle of the night. <laughs> I had trained my trained myself to sleep lightly because I didn't know if a breakfast cook was going to call out or not, and then I had to go. Jesus. Work breakfast that morning. That's a shitty work-life balance. No wonder your mental health was struggling. (laughs) I mean, that's fucked up. But, um, but you're coming back to Atlanta now. I mean, you're, you're like in the transition process. Um, you know, are you just going to take a minute, take a beat to just kind of see where you fall energetically, or are you going to go back to the pop-up? Oh, no, I'm, um, I mean, this little, month and a half or so before I, I do transition back to Atlanta it's kind of like the you know the time I need you know um that I'm trying to take and you know trying to understand myself and also you know just making sure that I am doing the work and doing the therapy and that like I'm not going to go back and fall into the same habits so you know, going back to Atlanta, I, I will, you know, I'm going to hop, hop back into doing pop-ups and, um, you know, peddling spices as much as I can, too. Yeah, I saw that you, uh, I, I, I just followed your spice account this morning. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I use a shit ton of spices and, you know, how I cook, you know, because that is just a part of, the African diaspora, you know, just as the food raiser of Africa, like, you know, I, I named the company Triangle Traded Spices, not because of the Middle Passage or the trade, you know, not just because of the trading of, you know, my ancestors, um, but because, you know, obviously I couldn't go, I didn't want to go name it the Colombian Exchange, which is, you know, commonly associated with, um, but um, because that within that triangular trade, the, the middle passage, you know, yes, there was the more the more horrific part of it. And I don't discount that by far at all. But within within that trading of bodies, of souls, of humans, minds and cultures, that's where a lot of things, you know, intertwine throughout the world now. You know, and that's a lot about how I cook and how the food that I do, it's, it's about the connection. Um, and it's trying to draw upon that and educate and, 
help people understand that we're more alike, you know, through food and just through behaviors and personalities and, you know, as much as we aren't in skin color. But, you know, trying to trade spices, you know, focuses on, like, the trading of the cultures and the and the goods that were involved in in that horrific time in this world. So, um, and, but, you know, like I cook with a lot of spices. So it was always naturally something that I wanted to do. Oh, I think it's a brilliant um, transition. Absolutely. I mean, do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's anyone in that so, space um, right now in, in that specific Caribbean space of those types of spices. I mean, you have like marijuana, you know, doing spice walla, but this is like a different kind of vibe, I think. Yeah, little did I know that. Spice Wallow was based out of Asheville. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and I didn't realize until I interviewed him, it's like, it's an older company. I thought it was newer, but it's like, you know, at least like in the double digits. But speaking of something I did want to talk to you about based on your Instagram before I like ADD it, and since you were just discuss discussing, you know, just the black experience, um, you, you posted a couple of weeks ago this quote that, Black chefs have been the backbone of food service, but largely invisible. Um, and it was a quote from Chef Joe Randall from 1986. Something I've discussed on this podcast, because I think it is something that needs to be discussed, is, is, is just how Atlanta is, to me, such a black mecca. But the talent that gets held up on the national stage has never been, to me having been someone who grew up here since 1978, <laughs> you know, like representative of the people that actually live here. Um, you know, it's always white dudes, right? With beards. We're lucky if we get like a woman, like luckily, like we saw Claudia Martinez, who I know you're tight with, the chef at Miller Union, the pastry chef at Miller Union, get a nod. And we saw you get a nod who's coming back. But but it's, it's, it's strange to me. Um, you know, can you just discuss what it is like to be a black chef, uh, not only in the South, but just period. Um, do you, do you feel like you don't get the recognition you deserve? Um, I mean, like, I know, like I had Nicole Taylor on and she's like, you know, there's plenty of black cooks you probably don't even know about, you know, and they, they don't care about James Beard awards, but I feel like personally chefs want awards and they want, restaurant critics because it's like a symbiotic relationship right it's art that needs you know and art i think needs criticism i mean because i mean constructive criticism that's what it's looked at as me like i i a constructive criticism helps you you know hone in and helps you figure out where you you can you can you know what you can work on what you can get better at you know, these are things that I, I, I mean, we talk about all the time within the circle of, you know, the black hospitality circles. Um, you know, for me, um, going from not knowing what the hell a James Beard was or a Michelin star was to, you know, working in those spaces and, I, you know, idolizing it and wanting to achieve it. Um, cause you know, even coming to Ben a, a year ago, um, that was clear cut. One of the standards that I set, you know, for them, I was like, look, I want to be in a position. I don't want anybody, I'm not trying to ask anybody to put me in a position to, 
I want to be in a position to be able to win a James Beard. I want to be in a position to be food and, one of Food and Wine's best new chefs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Why? Because I always tell people, like, it is like the, the stamp of white validation in the food circles for black chefs. Mm. What does that stamp of white validation translate to? Opportunity, exposure. Mm. Like, it, it translates into now people look at you as someone like, oh, now you do know how to do this, although you've been doing it for a while. I mean, whether you're white, black, Latino, or Asian, like, it's all a stamp of validation for some white America, I feel that now you know what you're doing now we can work with you now we can invest in you mm. you're you commercially know, you're can... commercially viable in a way exactly mm. Um, mm. but still but still in getting that stamp of approval like even right now like as i know like i don't necessarily want to run into a space as an executive chef or a leadership in a leadership role right now, unless it's my own, that it's still a lot of work that you have to do just as much as you did before to continue to maintain the the image and the presence that you you got yourself to now. You know, so now it's almost like even more of a, you know, a feeling of pressure. And then like, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I, I, I well I, I I do love a lot of the things that the JBF has done in their you know audit of mm-hmm, themselves mm-hmm. over the last yeah I was going to ask you but how I'm you felt good. after going this year I I still feel it, it it still lacks still lacks it's still a lot like I know nothing is going to be fixed overnight which is you know two years is overnight for almost 20, 30, 40 years of, you know, what they have been. Um, I mean, I just, I'm, I I hope to, now that I'm affiliate with them, I guess, mm-hmm. I hope to continue to be a part of their evolution and, you know, to being, you know, um, giving more opportunity and exposure to marginalized, you know, groups of chefs and, um, you know, genders. Um, but, you know, even just the simple thing of them not even, you have to pay your way to Chicago. Yeah. You know, like plane ticket, hotels, like they give you one complimentary ticket with this. And I found out was, and I found out, you know, not even realizing knowing this because that was another thing that was frustrating to me is that like, to an extent, like I've gotten to this place on my own. You know, yeah, I've, I've had, a, like I said before, I have a lot of good and reliable, great staff and people working with me, front of the house, back of the house, that has helped me sell this food and, and do this and do that. But as far as the, the, the work side of it, like of conceptualizing dishes and perfecting recipes and making sure it's consistent and all these other things, like I've you know, I've essentially gotten to this place on my own, like, um, and then being in Chicago, that was something that I realized more than anything, like, cause every chef that I 
or restaurateur that I met, like they're there with their team. I was in Chicago by myself, you know, like if it wasn't for, you know, Fadia and um, Steph Annie, um, who's from Kentucky, but I mean, from Asheville, but she had been in Kentucky and she got a nom a couple of years ago when they canceled it. And, you know, Clay Williams is photographer and, um, the gene who was in my category for New Orleans, like, you know, I would have been a complete loner up there. Um, <laughs> nobody's from, cause nobody's from been a, from the hotel came with me. Nobody supported me. Like they, they didn't even like, you know, advertise it. Like things that got posted on social media or social Yeah, like media. I saw Steven Satter, Chef Steven Satterfield was with Claudia, you know, blowing her up, gassing her up, yeah. putting her on Instagram. Yeah, I see what you're talking about. So you didn't have your team yeah. with you. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I've been like that since I've been operating in these spaces, and that goes into part of being a Black chef. A lot of the times, the work that you're doing, you're doing it solo until mm. Wow, that's cultivate a team, you know, mm. because a lot of times what's happening with black chefs, even with what happened with the cookout event that um, Chef Max and and Justin Dixon um, of Humble Mumble and Chef Max of the Lawrence in Atlanta, the cookout we did a couple of weeks ago. With Brian Furman and everyone. Yeah, the West Side Motor Lounge, like, you know, nobody in Atlanta wrote about that. Not a single person spoke about that. I think Punk Foodie did. He's uh, this guy. He I, like, yeah, they did. yeah, he, yeah, he's no, no. like, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah. But I mean, no, but, I, I, but yeah. I mean, on a, I, mean, I mean, like Eater, Atlanta Magazine, the AJC, like, you know, the larger footprints, mm. like, like where, and that's a lot of times, like, even the same thing. How can I, I feel about like Miami, like, like, I feel like a lot of times the food media in Atlanta doesn't really elevate and support the black chefs as much organically uh, as they can be. I agree. A lot of times it, it has to be, the, it has to be the PR person or the marketing team or whomever reaching out. Or if that chef doesn't have a relationship with, you know, someone like yourself or Mike Jordan or Wendell um, Brock or, um, um, you know, some of them, you know, more affluent food writers in the Atlanta area, like, you know, you, you don't get heard or noticed. And, and that was one thing I can say I've, I've kind of appreciated about, well, not kind of, I have appreciated about being in North Carolina is that, like, the food writers here, they're, you know, they're not just latching on to the things here and there, mm. you know, but they really are invested in the food culture of North Carolina, you know, and even more so, like, I, I've seen it now, they're even more invested in elevating the black chefs that are here in North Carolina. And and Atlanta is, is not like that. Like, I, I always say, like, you know, the Atlanta, you know, just from in general, black chefs, we don't get to be in the opportunity of where I have been the last year to be in charge of a high profile mm -hmm. restaurant with a budget to 
to do the food the way you want to do it, completely unadulterated. Mm-hmm. And secondly, be able to position you with a, a great PR team to, to elevate the great food that you're doing. So that's the difference in most spaces that more, most black chefs end up in. And then even if they are in a high-profile restaurant, they're, they're the chef de cuisine or they're cooking someone else's food and it's that chef's owner who is the image of the restaurant, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, So it's, it's like, like one black face in a kitchen of all white faces. You know, you, you do see black cooks, but, but it's never, you know, at the top in Atlanta, which, you know, which is why I'm, I'm glad to see you coming back because I do believe that there also need to be black chefs in those positions to model to younger chefs that are coming up. So they know it's a possibility. Um, but if, like and, you said, I mean, I mean to me, and it's 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 scary because, like, I, I'm I'm not gonna lie because I I am terrified because you know it's a you know it's a thing that's sometimes commonly associated with you know black people and our culture where they call it the black tax. Um, whereas now that you're in this position where mm. you know of affluent identity whether it's just with attention or money or being able to get opportunity now it's expected of you to to uphold and uplift and you know the rest of you know black culture and all this stuff in spite of everything else that comes with it um but at the same time like i i am scared too not from just that black tax perspective of things, but also just like that I am an outspoken person. Like I am comfortable enough who I am to speak my mind and and speak on things that I feel needs to be identified. Um that how I am how am I gonna be received now? You know, you know, what you know, how can like I'm not trying I want I want the black creative community, especially the culinary community and F&B industry in Atlanta to come more together. And because I feel like there is a bit of separation, you know, there's a bit of clickiness within the culinary spaces in Atlanta. Um, And I want those things to change. I want there to be more cohesiveness and, you know, knowing that there is space and opportunity for all of us, you know, and that's just not, not even just black stuff. That's just all ethnicity groups. That's why I like, you know, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm excited to get back to Atlanta because of, you know, it is, it does feel like home, you know, I, I do, I've developed in a short amount of time, like a lot of great relationships, you know, um, with a lot of great people there. You know, whether it's Claudia or Maricela or Max or Chef Ron or, you know, Aaron and, you know, friend Kristen, who's a sous chef at Trastane, you know, like there's a lot of great relationships that I've made. Um, and I want to continue to expound upon that just, but not just, you know, and, you know, hopefully us being that new wave of, um, chefs in Atlanta that, that create more of a community than that has been, I feel like with the old guard that's in Atlanta. 
Because mm-hmm. I don't feel like there's a sense of community to, amongst the old guard of chefs in Atlanta. As you digest all of these, you know, things that you've gone through in the past few years and, and you make moves now, you know, what, what's next on the horizon for you? How can people keep up with you? Um, you know, and what, where can they look for you and your food? Um, I mean, for as far as right now, like, um, I'm gonna, when I get back to Atlanta, I'm going to, again, I'm just going to focus on peddling my spices. <laughs> um, <laughs> you're, a, spice you're a spice peddler. <laughs> Um, an old merchant <laughs> and um you know i'm gonna do some pop-ups on me me claudia and Maricella. we actually got a pop-up that we're planning to do on august 7th you're my gird what's that about those are like some of all my favorite people so Maricela vega claudia martinez and you <laughs> okay tell us more august 7th you said what did you say yeah yeah we're gonna and um Chef um, Armando, he's going to let us use his space um, at Tio. So, um, and the new Peruvian spot, Tio Luchos? The, Is that yeah, right, Tio? Yeah, mm. yeah Tio Luchos. So, yeah, we're, we're going to use this space. And um, we're still working through it, even though we only got, what, maybe three weeks now. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, we've all been kind of busy people. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's one of the first things I will be doing when I get back to Atlanta. And then, you know, there's also the, um, you know, doing a, about six or nine days or so at Eight Arm. As, you know, everybody knows they're closing and they're kind of... Don't remind me. Pop-ups are coming there. Ugh, so, so sad. Um, you know, Marcella put me on and connected me with them. And, there's a lot, you know, so I'll, I'll be... I'll be um, doing a couple couple um days there at um eight arm and you know i'm sure there'll be some other things that'll be popping up and coming up in between those days and even moving forward um but you know the long-term goal is to to meet the right person develop the right relationships and you know to um you know to be able to open up my own space in atlanta well, I can't wait to eat there, but I definitely will be coming to Eight Arm because a million reasons. Um, no, I was going to say, I can't wait because there's a lot of people that I know who wanted to come to Asheville, didn't come to Asheville. So essentially, I'm my my mindset in going to Eight Arm is bringing everything I did at Bene, or which is a lot of things I've already done, <laughs> um, but bringing it to Eight Arm. So it's kind of be like a a Bene pop-up at eight arm, but, or anyhow. <laughs> but, so where can people follow you up. online to keep up with everything? Can you like shout out your handles, um, websites? Um, Instagram, you know, um, chef Opus, um, which is, you know, my name's Cleophis. So basically the last five letters of my name, a friend gave me Opus. Um, so chef Opus, um, that's chef O P H U S. And, and then, um, you know, spices, I'll, I also probably be doing some, um, you know, farmer's market here and there selling spices. Um, you can always find my spices. Um, Instagram is, um, TT spices, um, with the underscore at the end and, or the website, which is just ttspices.com. 
Well, thank you again for your time. It was really good to hear your story because I know we've just had bits and spurts and, and, and I will definitely be seeing you at ADAR. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's this week's episode and that's also the end of season two. Thank you to Cleophis for coming on the show and thank you to you for listening. I have had such a great time doing season two and hope you have enjoyed the show. Um, I'll probably be back at the end of this year, if not the beginning of 2023 with season three. Keep an eye on my Instagram to see when that season is dropping. Again, thanks for listening. And please don't forget to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening. If you haven't done so already, it helps other people find me. And I also love to hear what you guys think of all of these stories and the show. This has been The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman. Thanks for listening.